Okay, so we are going to be in Mark chapter 8. So here's, I mean, if, if you've been in any of my classes that I taught in here through Mark, I'm going to kind of structure this the same way, real casual. Uh, we're just going to read the Bible, <laughs> read it together, um, talk about some things that as a, a Western English-speaking Christian in the 21st century that you might not see. Um, things that are in the Greek, things are kind of hidden within context. We'll, I'll reveal some of those things, uh, and then, yeah, we'll just, we'll just have fun with this text, uh, and maybe it'll give a little more clarity to why there are two feedings of thousands of people in the Gospel of Mark. Um, maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't. Uh, chapter 6, uh, we, we talked about feeding of the 5,000. Uh, which was likely more than 5,000. There's a the little Greek word there that said 5,000 men, um, which probably meant that there were women and children there as well. Uh, this is the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8. And uh, the, Greek, uh, the Greek for that crowd is not masculine, meaning there were, it was a much smaller crowd. There were probably actually 4,000 people, men, women, and children included in this section. Uh, so just a fun little detail. First one was probably more than 5,000, 6, 7, 8,000. This, uh, this one was probably around 4,000. If they were actually counting heads, who knows? I think the idea is that it's a little smaller crowd, but still pretty miraculous thing that's going to take place here. Preachers count, amen. I mean, there's about, what, 150 of you in here right now? So, I mean, you get the idea. <laughs> I'll tell Tracy that. <laughs> About 150 people came to class. What are you doing wrong? Uh, okay, so let's, let's just go to the text. Um, so we're not going to make it through all of this. I'm just giving you a warning. Uh, we're going to try to get through 8, 1 through Mark 8, verse 1 uh, through verse 21. That's what I'll be preaching on, uh, but I'm going to be going much quicker in the sermon. Uh, but we're going to break it up into three sections. So we're going to start with the first section, and I, I just want to—I want us to read it, uh, read it. Uh, somebody read it, and everybody else kind of listen. Uh, so will somebody read chapter eight, verses one through verses ten? Uh, and what I want you to do as as you listen, I want you to try to the best you can reflect on the feeding of the five thousand in Mark chapter six, and try to identify some of the similarities and some of the differences between the two accounts. Uh, and we'll actually spend some time doing that together, but I want you to see what, what was the same, what was different. If you want to flip back and kind of read them side by side, you can do that. Uh, but will somebody read 1 through 10 for us? Okay, there it is. There's a story. Uh, what, let's, let's just kind of start off, kick this out right out of the gate. What were, what were some of the similarities between... The feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Is there any that you recognize? Okay, yeah, kind of the same theme going on here. A um, lot of people. Little food. Jesus does something amazing with a little amount. Okay, what else? Little bread, little fish. Yeah, same, same uh, key ingredients. 
same source from the beginning. Yeah, what else? That's actually a difference. That is an, a different number. Um, in the previous, uh, there's 12, I, I believe. Is that right? There's, am I right in saying that? Five? They pick up 12. Okay. There was doubt in the disciples. Yeah. Yeah, they, 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 in fact, they ask a question. Uh, and Jesus asks a question. So there's a, there's a similar correspondence between the disciples and Jesus. Um, the, que- the disciples basically ask how. Uh, and Jesus asks how many. Right? They ask, how are we going to feed all these people? Jesus asks, how many loaves do you have? Like, how, how, what are our resources? What do we have access to here? Um, some others that you might not see, um, both, I'm already, I know y'all can't see down here, um, both take place in a desolate place or a, des- a desert place, kind of a, um, out in the middle of nowhere, basically. Uh, there is a prayer between both, which is actually a, a really interesting difference between the prayers, but uh, there's a prayer in both, uh, and there were leftovers both and Jesus sends them away sends the crowds away in both and they were satisfied both times yeah Um, uh, had their fill yeah okay so you look at this list and you say Man, there are a lot of similarities between these two stories. What are the odds that these are the same story? Um, and, and a lot of scholars, they, they, they kind of go down this path. Um, they think that the, the feeding of the 4,000 uh, is actually a, a doublet of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, there was... They, they would claim that there is kind of one big thing Jesus did, uh, and there's a reason that he is, the, there's a reason Mark decides to split into two stories. Um, let me ease, it maybe it eases you, maybe it doesn't. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think there were actually two feedings, um, and I, I believe that for various reasons. Um, part of that is the differences are pretty key. Uh, but But regardless if, it's the same or not. Um, the, one of the, the reasons, like if, they, if it's the same event or if it's different event, the, the middle part, the, the purpose of the event is the same. Like the reason Mark decided to put this in the story and the reason Jesus had this feeding are the same, are the same thing. Uh, and it's all about the audience. Of, of this feeding versus the audience of the previous feeding. Yeah, and, and Mark kind of gives us a little narrative of him moving throughout. In fact, where, where is, and that, that, that plays into this, so where is Jesus right now? And I'm not necessarily looking for a specific place. I'm kind of looking for, like, what region is Jesus in here? Any, any ideas? 
Tracy kind of alluded to it last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's in Tyre and Sidon and Decapolis. What was that? Way up north. Who's way up north? Who, what was that? The pagans. What's a word that they would use? I mean, they do use pagans, yes. What's another common word they would use? Gentiles. Yeah. Jesus is on a journey with the Gentiles here. And it began back in uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 24. Yeah, 24, the Syrophoenician woman. If you remember that, um, Tracy teaching and preaching on that story. Um, this awkward conversation that Jesus has with this woman calling her a dog. And she says, well, even dogs eat the crumbs off of the kids' plates. And uh, he, he kind of likes that banter. And he does, he heals his, her daughter eventually. And then you, you, you move to uh, the deaf and the mute man. Remember that? And Jesus has this weird thing where he spits and he puts it on his tongue, right? And that's a Gentile man. And then now he's with 4,000 Jews. And he's sitting them down and he's feeding them. Uh, why is that important? What, what, what is Mark doing here by kind of structuring the story this way? And what is Jesus doing here by providing for this Jewish crowd? What, what would you say is happening here? Why is this story in our Bible? Why did Jesus do this? What, what would you say? We know the audience is for the Gentiles. We know that the feeding of the 5,000 was for the Jews. What would be the reason? Exactly. These two are one and the same, according to Jesus, which is the theology that we will see in our Bible. Um, Paul will carry this theology throughout. Um, Jesus came to save, not Jew and Gentile, right? Not slave or free person, not man or woman. He came to save all people. His, his saving grace, his provision of, of providing and satisfying people of not just their physical needs, but their deeper spiritual needs, is met with Jesus. Like both parties are met. And these, these stories are very similar. And maybe, maybe they happened very similarly. Maybe, I mean, maybe Jesus kind of worked the same, the same thing, kind of did the same thing with them. Or maybe Mark just kind of just kind of weaves the stories together to show us narratively that these two things are, are, they interlap. Like Jesus cares for the audience equally here. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to go down a list of the differences. Uh, I don't want to waste our time there. There are differences. Um, there's a different word for the word fish. Um, one of them, the feeding of the 4,000, it's more like a sardine. I don't know if that's interesting to you or not. Uh, uh, obviously, a different count of loaves and a different uh, a different concluding number. Uh, one of them, the the feeding of the five thousand, it talks about they were sitting in like green pastures. This one is in much more hill, uh, uh, much more barren and hilly uh, scenario. Uh, so there there are differences, and 
The backdrop of the 5,000 was revolutionary Jews. The backdrop of the 4,000 are these outcast Gentiles that come from a far way off. Notice, um, and we're going to kind of go break into the verse here. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowds because they have been with me now for how long? Three days. And they've had nothing to eat. So this gets to a very interesting, uh, a very interesting part of this story, and one that I didn't really notice until I, I started comparing these two texts. I want you to go back to the feeding of the five thousand, real quick. Uh, so chapter six, verse uh, it starts in verse thirty, but I want to go to verse thirty-three and thirty-four. Will somebody read? Let's just read 34. Will somebody read verse 34 of chapter 6? Okay, now somebody go back over to verse chapter 8 and somebody read verse 2. What's the difference? What's the difference between those two sentences? Okay. Um, I will say to, to go with that, to tag on to that, um, who is pointing out the need? And maybe it wasn't in those verses, but the first, the feeding of 5,000, the disciples point out the need. Like, these people are hungry. Uh, in, the, in the second one, feeding of 4,000, Jesus identifies the problem. Okay, what else? And that kind of bleeds into the answer I'm looking for here. But there's, a, there's another key difference here. What is it? They don't say how long he's with him. Okay, so they, these, these people just kind of came. Okay, what else? Okay, so they're out in the middle of nowhere. It's like a full dependence. Mm -hmm. I want you to look at the, the literary differences here. Okay, like sheep without a shepherd. Who is identifying the condition of the crowds in the first account? And who identifies how Jesus felt? Okay. So in the feeding of the 5,000, notice what it says. And this is, it may not seem like a difference, but it is. Like, the authors of our gospel, Mark or Peter here, they are literary geniuses. I mean, they don't do things by accident. I mean, these guys are trying to tell the greatest story ever told, and their words matter to them, right? Notice what it says in chapter 6. When he went ashore, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Either Mark or the disciples or somebody is identifying this is how Jesus felt. This is how he treated this crowd. In chapter 8, verse 2, 
where all of a sudden we are placed inside the very heart and mind of Jesus, where he is identifying, I have compassion on the crowds. I do. You are, you are stepping inside of my shoes here. It is, it's all of a sudden becoming far more personal. For the Jews, this, this, this crowd of 5,000, 8,000, however many are there, Jesus is he's doing what they are expecting. Right? Here is Jesus, the, the Messiah, who's going to provide for the Jewish people. He's going to liberate us. He's going to save us. Here he is. Look at him. The feeding of the 4,000, now we are in a much different crowd, a much different group of people. And, it's, and, and Mark makes a shift where he says you can no longer look at what Jesus is doing. You have to get to the very heart of what Jesus is feeling. Like Jesus isn't just doing, like he's not just out here feeding people. There is something happening inside of Jesus that he is calling us into. And the reason I say that is because of the word used for compassion here. I have compassion. What does that word mean? <clears throat> to you, what does the word compassion mean? Empathy? Did someone say that? What does empathy mean to you? Okay. Okay. What else? Okay. What else? All fine and dandy definitions. But it's not what this definition is. It's not what the Greek is. Um, now, it's definitely attached to these. But the word used here for uh, compassion, and I'm, I'm going to talk about this in the sermon, but you get the teaser being so early. I don't even know where I am in my notes, so hold on a second, because I definitely need help spelling this word. Okay. Uh, the word for compassion in Greek Anybody know it? Uh, you see that? All right. Who wants to go for it? Come on, somebody. What, what is that? How do you say that word? I, I need your help, so how do you say that word? Anybody? It, that's close. That's probably a, a far uh, better accent. And uh, if you break it down, it's splunknizame. Um, that sounded better. Uh, splunknizame is what the word is. Uh, and it comes from uh, a root word, slogan, which is definitely not how you say that. <laughs> uh, but that's the root word, which literally means entrails or vital organs what that word means. Entrials or vital organs. So Jesus here, when he says, I have compassion on the crowds, 
there is a gut-wrenching emotion, like deep down inside of Jesus, that he is feeling towards these crowds. And it's something beyond just like, I, I care for them, and I want to provide for them. It's more than, and I'll say this in the sermon, it's more than like my desire to go to Sonny's for lunch. Like, you know how it's like, I, I want to go to Sonny's, I, I care about that, I want to go do that. And it's more than your desire to get out on time so that you can also go to Sonny's, right? It is, it is something deep within us that causes us, uh, and I love the you feel what they feel, you can feel the pain that they are feeling. Like Jesus, he doesn't just want, he doesn't just want to help people meet their, like, so he doesn't want to just give them food to eat. Like he has a deep gut desire to give them what they need. Not what they want, what they need. And it, and it turns him, and, it, and it, it almost forces him to do something here. Despite what other people think he should do, despite of what uh, the cultural context says he should do, it is turning something inside of him. Now here's the, and I'll mention this in a sermon as well, here's what I love about this word, it's its usage throughout the Gospel of Mark. So this compassion that Jesus feels, he, he feels it for a couple of different people, uh, but it's never the people that you would expect him to have compassion towards. Jesus doesn't have compassion towards his family, at least it's never used. Jesus, it's never used that he has compassion for uh, his friends or even his disciples. In fact, the list of people who, who receive this kind of gut-wrenching emotion from Jesus is a very offensive list. It's lepers and revolutionaries and Gentiles and the demon-possessed. That's the list. That's who gets to feel, or that's who Jesus has a deep reaction towards. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now. Uh, and that word, been with me, uh, or they have remained with me. Is, does anybody have remained in their Bible? They have remained with me for three days, so, so on and so forth. Um, another Greek word um, what the word is probably doesn't matter, but it's an intensified, it's an intensified remaining with them. Um, and it, it is supposed to go in contrast to the Jews in chapter 6, who just kind of appear. <laughs> and they could go get food if they want to, but they don't. Um, this is a crowd that is becoming fully dependent on Jesus. We are out here, we've been with you for three days, we're in the middle of nowhere, we are looking to you. We are depending on you. You see the, like the comparison here now. It's like, it's like forming. Okay, the Jews have a certain reaction. Yes, this is the Messiah that we are expecting. He's going to liberate us. He's going to take care of us. Here he is to provide for us. For the Gentiles, it's, this, is, this is completely against everything I know. But Jesus, I'm trusting. I'm putting all my chips on you. I'm having full dependence in you. And it's that kind of devotion that, that strikes a deep compassion, a deep wrenching, a gut wrenching emotion inside of Jesus. Woo, okay, that was, that was quite a bit. Um, any, any thoughts or comments on that?
I don't give y'all enough time to talk. I think I talk too much, so. Any thoughts on that? Continued with him. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. His heart was breaking. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It. Yeah. It, that's that's a great point. Um, our emotions they drive almost everything about us, and sometimes we can't control them, uh, and sometimes we can or we we try to. But they they control just more than like how I'm feeling. They control my my physical like whenever I'm sad, tears start coming and I can't control it. Whenever I'm scared, I start sweating, and, and my, my voice goes in and out, and I become shaky. Like, something happens to my entire being whenever emotions start playing into it. And that's exactly what's happening to Jesus here. And that's what happens to him whenever he, he witnesses the death of his, one of his best friends, Lazarus, and he's overwhelmed with sadness by looking at the pain on his friend's heart, and he begins to weep. It's the same emotion that Jesus has whenever he knows that that morning he's going to be taken and tortured and killed and he's overwhelmed and he breaks down onto his knees. There is, there is a motion, there is, Jesus is so much more than some divine God that sits inside in a cloud and just watches over us. Like we have a God who came down and experienced life and experienced it the same magnitude that we do pains and the joys and all the in-between. And and Jesus, he allowed his heart to be broken. Thank you for that language. He allowed his heart to be broken for the crowds. Yeah. 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 So that is one of the key questions when it comes to comparing these two. Now, what I would usually counter to that, uh, I would counter that in two, it's not like a competition, so I'm not like countering. Uh, My response to that would be, um, if you look a little bit later in the feeding of the 8,000, Jesus also brings up both feedings. Uh, So chapter 8, verses 19, uh, yeah, end of, End of 18, okay, let me just read. Verse 18, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, do you not remember? When I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many loaves did you pick up then? Oh, they thought about it, 12. And then the seven for the 4,000, how many loaves did I pick up then? Oh, you know, we, you know, we had seven. Do you not yet understand? Okay, so even Jesus, he's, he's bringing up both accounts. Um, but I think there's something far more profound happening here. Um, and let me see if I can find it in my notes so I can make sure I hit it right. Uh, Okay, here it is. Let me just read this section of my notes in response to that. Although Mark records proportionally how miracles, uh, more miracles than the other evangelists, 
He certainly does not portray Jesus as a vendor of miracles. With few exceptions in Mark, Jesus' miraculous activity comes to people, and especially to the disciples, as holy, wondrous, and unanticipated activity. Hankering for miracles is a sign of Jesus' opponent, not his followers. As the request for the sign of the, the, sign of the Pharisees, um, which we're going to see in the next section where the Pharisees are going to ask, hey, Jesus, give us a sign from heaven, uh, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Uh, although the disciples fail in essential ways to understand Jesus, they know his servant posture um, well enough to not prod him for miraculous intervention. The assumption that the disciples should have lobbied for a miracle in the Decapolis is a great misunderstanding of them as their misunderstanding of Jesus. In other words, a request, a request for the miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is not the attitude of a follower of Jesus. So the disciples, if, if Mark is writing this, um, and, and if they actually forgot, who knows? Like, if, if there is actually this interaction where they're like, oh, I don't remember when you fed 5,000 people. It's likely Mark is trying to do something here to us. And the request from a person to Jesus to say, Jesus, give us a sign of such and such is not a sign that you are a follower and you understand who Jesus is. It's actually the opposite. It's a, it's a sign that you want more proof of who Jesus is. So the disciples could have easily said, hey, remember when you fed the 5,000? Well, we have 4,000 here. Let's do it again. And in fact, in the very next section, uh, after the Pharisees, it's going to happen again. They're going to be in a boat. They're going to have no bread. And they're going to say, how are we going to eat on this boat? And then he has that interaction. Do you not remember the 5,000? Do you not remember the 4,000? Do you not yet understand? Because it's not, in, it's, what, what I think Mark is trying to do is show us that Jesus is so, it's so much more than just a vendor of miracles. Like, he didn't just come here to prove to us that he is God. He came here to transform us. And, and to, he came here so that our curiosity and our wonderment of the things that he does do, that that will draw us closer to him. Not our desire to get what we want. Uh, does that answer any? I mean, it, it's hard for us to step inside of not just this narrative, but the way that Mark is telling this narrative. Um, because we, it's just two chapters away for us. Um, it's like, well, I just read about him feeding, why, what's going on here? But Mark is, Mark is trying to do something to his readers, and he's showing what is happening as a follower of Jesus as we walk along on this journey with Jesus, what it means to actually understand who he is and what he's doing in the world. Um, and he's not here to just feed you, at least not physical food. Okay, um, let's, how much time do we have? I think we got a little bit more time. Uh, so he gives thanks, um, which is a, a very strong, um, the giving thanks. So if you look in verse, verse 6, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke. Um, if you go back to verse 6, Verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and he broke the bread. Um, this is a very strong, um, uh, very strong evidence that, that these two feedings are for two different groups of people because of the word used right there for blessing and the actions that take place. Um, Jesus' prayer 
to the heavens. And the, the word he uses for blessing here, eulogian, uh, is actually a Jewish custom. Like to look up to heaven and to say this prayer and to use this word, eulogian, is a Jewish custom of giving thanks over bread. Very different than what he does in, in chapter 8 with the Gentile crowd, where he says, he, having it, he gave thanks and he broke it, um, which is the word Eucharistain, uh, Eucharistain, uh, which is where we get the word Eucharist from. It's, it's the Jewish custom of breaking bread. Uh, and it's, like I said, it's where we get our word and where we get our understanding of breaking bread. Uh, so the first one, feeding of 5,000, likely to the Jews. He does Jewish customs to bless the bread. Feeding of the 4,000, he does a very different custom, a Gentile custom of breaking bread, one that we have adopted. Uh, so that one's for free. Um, just to kind of show that's probably to do to two different audiences. Um, in the very next section, uh, the Pharisees demand for a sign. Uh, we're not going to have, probably have enough time to fully develop this, uh, but I almost left this part out of my sermon uh, until some very wise people um, said that I, I definitely should not, and I'm glad I listened to them, because this little section with the Pharisees is actually the crux of this entire section right here. Uh, so will somebody read uh, verses 11 through 13 for us? Okay, um, it's kind of random. <laughs> like, it's like, okay, we had the feeding of the 4,000, we had this miracle, Jesus gets into a boat, and then all of a sudden he's with the Pharisees, and they have this weird interaction, and then he gets back in a boat, and he, he's, it's like, this is one of those, like, like, flyover verses. It's like, okay, it's just Pharisees doing their Pharisee thing. Um, but it's, it's deeply connected to the rest of the narrative here. Um, let me just give, uh, just kind of a, as we read it, very aggressive language is used in the Greek here. That does not come out uh, in your English translation. Uh, Mark uses very militaristic language here. Uh, so, let me just kind of give you some examples. Uh, the word came, so they came out. Um, that is, I'm not going to give you the Greek words here, but just trust me, the Greek word used there is a military term, like a, like a military rank coming out. Um, they, not, they came to question him. Uh, that word in Greek is to dispute or oppose him, uh, which is actually a staple in the Mark gospel um, used for the Pharisees. Uh, the word for ask, like they asked him for a sign from heaven. Uh, another regular uh, thing used uh, in Mark's gospel, basically uh, seeking to gain control over the situation. Like it's not just asking a genuine question, it's like asking uh, a question with strings attached, like I'm trying to trick you. I'm, try I'm asking you a certain question. Uh, and then the word for um, they were trying to test him, which is pretty obvious in itself. There's, there's a motive behind their question. Um, so aggressive, antagonistic language used for the Pharisees here. Um, it's kind of a shift, right? You have Jesus having compassion on the crowds. He cares for them. He loves them. Uh, one thing I didn't mention at the very end when he sends them away uh, in verse 9, the second half of 9, that word send them away, apoleine, uh, it has two separate meanings. One of it is to get rid of or to dismiss them, which is likely... Uh, uh, the Jewish response to Gentiles, like dismiss them, get away. The second half of that, of that word, the second meaning of that word is to liberate or to release somebody. Uh, very different meanings. 
Um, and likely the one that Mark is using. Like, he liberates, he, he sets the Gentiles free. He gives them freedom. Um, okay, so uh, back to the Pharisees. Uh, I don't know why I, I don't know why I said that. Um, okay, I don't know why I said that, but I said it. So the Pharisees came, and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. What did, what did the disciples ask from Jesus? Or, I'm sorry, what did the Pharisees ask from Jesus? What is that? Anybody? What is that? What do they want? What are they looking for here? Okay. Proof he's the Messiah. I like that. I don't know why my eye is so big. Okay. Okay. Wow, y'all y'all know this. Uh yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a disbelief in the Pharisees' hearts here, right? I mean, we saw that in the, the language that Mark uses. Like, they're testing him. They're questioning him. All this kind of stuff. Okay. So a sign from heaven, it's, it's, import, it's, a, it's an important distinction. The, the Pharisees are not asking for a miracle. They're not asking for that. Um, in fact, the word for miracle, um, uh, what is the word? Dianomis? I'm, sa- I'm butchering all of you. Just forgive me, please. Uh, which is, there it is, if you want to try to show me up. Uh, that word for miracle, it's not used anywhere in this section. Uh, instead, the word sign is used, simeon. So what is the difference between a miracle and a sign? What, what do you think? What's the difference between those two? Okay, and what is a miracle? Okay, that, that's, that's, a good, that's a good solid foundation there. Yeah, a miracle defines reality in some way. Feeding of 5,000, 4,000 people. It defines it. Is Jesus going to stop doing miracles? No. In fact, he's going to do one of the greatest miracles, which just so happens to also be a sign, but well, he's going to do one of the greatest miracles here in a little bit when he dies and he rises from the dead. <laughs> like, he's not done doing that. So whenever he says, I'm not going to give this generation any more signs, he's not saying, I'm not going to go defy reality for you anymore. No, he's going to continue doing this. What Jesus is saying is I'm not, and Tim kind of hit it right on, I'm not going to fulfill I'm not going to give you confirmation of a sign from heaven that you are expecting. Because your definition of of the fulfillment of this is far different than my definition of it. That's what Jesus is saying here. What what kind of Messiah, what kind of Messiah were the, the Pharisees expecting? What was that? 
Okay? So, uh, yeah, a kingly ruler. Yeah, and it came from the line of David. Um, yeah, we, they're expecting a king. And what is that king going to do when he comes into his kingdom? Okay. For, the, for these Pharisees, a sign, the sign that they are seeking, Jesus proved to us that you are the Messiah that we are expecting. Give, give us a sign that you are the Messiah that we, that we believe is going to liberate Israel, is going to liberate the Jews, who's going to rule over, who's going to kick these Romans out, who's going to push the Gentiles and these pagans out of here, and through the Jews, you are going to establish your kingdom. It's going to be a Jewish kingdom. That is, that is their understanding. Give us a sign that you are going to do this, Jesus. That's what they're asking from him. And the way you're going to give us a sign is God's authority is going to work through you to show us that this is true, that this reality is true. And what does Jesus say? He says no. He sa and, and he says no because... He says, I can't do that, and I won't do that. I can't do that because that, that's not, like, you can't expect something of God that's not in the nature of God. Like, I, I am a God who is not here to save the Jews. I am here, I am a God who's here to save all people. And you just saw that in the feeding of the 4,000, did you not? Where Jesus is feeding 4,000 people almost identical to how he was doing it to the Jews. Neither Jew or Gentile. But Ephesians talks about the, the breaking of the, the barrier of hostility between these two parties of people. I can't and I won't give you that kind of sign. The Pharisees, they have a mole. This is kind of where this, the sermon drives from. They have a mold, an understanding of who God is in their mind. This is who God is. This is how he works in the world. And if, and if you, Jesus, if you don't fit that mold, then you are not God. And here's the reality, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we do the same thing, do we not? We create molds. And, and I'll, I'm going to break this down further in my sermon, so I'm not going to spoil it here. You have to stay. But we create molds in different ways, based off of our experiences, based off of our understanding of Scripture, based off of our context and the age that we live in. We have molds that we form. And my mold looks a lot different than your mold, but the reality is, is that we have a mold of what God looks like and how we think he should work in the world. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign that validates your mold of who God is. Because, because God, God's grace and God's love and God's God's feeding God's provision, it cannot be limited to your finite categories that you put him inside. And so I can't and I won't give you that kind of sign. Uh, and so <laughs> he has this interaction, uh, and then he gets back into a boat with his disciples. Um, we're pretty much done. I'm not, I'm not going to break down that last section. Uh, but that last section I encourage you to read because it is our response 
to, what, to everything we just read. It's how, like we are now in the boat. We are the disciples. We are followers of Jesus. And now we are in the boat with Jesus. And, and Jesus, he warns them, do you still not have eyes to see and do you still not have ears to hear? Like I'm, I'm sitting right next to you. Look what they say. I, I love this. I love this. Verse 14. Now they have forgotten to bring bread. They have no bread, right? But then what? What does it say? They forgot to bring bread, but then what? Just read it. What does it say? Everybody already close your Bibles? Come on, folks. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Well, I thought they didn't have any bread. But they have one loaf? And, and then here in a little bit, they're going to say they, in fact, have no bread. Okay, so do they have bread or do they not have bread? And I don't think it's a stretch to assume that Mark, when he talks about that loaf, is referring to Jesus. In fact, Jesus has used this language before in, in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. They're right next to it. They're right next to the bread of life. And they don't see. Yeah, so if you didn't hear that, that, that word it kind of draws us back to compassion, which is only used, what, you said 11 times in the New Testament? I didn't know that, so that's awesome. Uh, and and it's, it's a word uniquely used by Jesus alone. Like Jesus, there's something inside of Jesus that cares that nobody else does. Like Jesus has a unique compassion toward these crowds. And I think what that last boat scene, and I'll end on this note, I think what that last boat scene is doing is it's, it's questioning to us, what is our response? Do we have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? Or are we sitting next to the bread of life, but we still are questioning, where are we going to get bread? Uh, and that's how I'm going to end the sermon. Just a teaser, just a, a, a spoiler alert. Like, this, this, this section, it ends right there. You're in the boat with Jesus. What do you do? What do you see? Uh, okay, that's it. Uh, let's, we have a little bit of time before worship. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming, everybody.